So, um, I want to talk about the integrity of love tonight. I want to speak to the love <clears throat> that's, in, <clears throat> that's embedded in our ethics, that guides us, that helps us stay on the path towards freedom. And in that way, we live our lives with the wholeness that the word integrity means. So, from the Latin root of integer, meaning whole and complete, integrity is this inner sense of wholeness deriving from clarity, insight, honesty, truth, and a consistency of one's in one's life, from intentions to actions to impacts and our learning. When we pay attention with this, this kind awareness, when we care with focused attention, there's an integrity that arises. in um, President Obama's farewell speech, which occurred this past Tuesday night. Uh, there's this paragraph that sort of included both of these intentions. Our democracy is threatened whenever we take it for granted. When we take something for granted, we're not paying attention. Mindfulness is the antidote to that indifference or taking it for granted. Paying attention. All of us, regardless of party, should be throwing ourselves into the task of rebuilding our democratic institutions. When voting rates in America are some of the lowest among advanced democracies, we should make it easier, not harder, to vote. When trust in our institutions is low, we should reduce the corrosive influence of money in our politics and insist on the principles of transparency and ethics in public service. Mindfulness and ethics. We judge people to have integrity to the extent that they act according to their values, their beliefs, the principles that they hold. And the values and the beliefs and the principles of this lineage and this practice and this community that we're engaged in is non-harming, supporting life. Not taking that which is not freely given or generosity. Not harming sexually and using our life force with compassion, creativity, and kindness. Not harming through communication and relating with kindness. Not altering the mind-heart 
from its natural state, being awake and not lost. And we practice this in small steps. Just like, um, I don't know if you had the same experience of, that I had in the line at dinner with the focaccia. <laughs> because that focaccia was some of the best focaccia I've tasted in a long time. And how much do I leave behind for all of you? That refraining from, from not using what I want, but just using what I need and leaving the rest behind. Likewise, when, when um, Donald made that announcement in the last sitting around just taking care of the chairs and the zabutans in the room, that not to, if you, if you need to use both, that's fine to switch, but to take your possessions so that you're not taking up space where you're not actually physically at. We practice this because we care about our community. And it's an ethical response that creates that caring. This non-harming we talked about in, in one of my first groups is actually a baseline. Non-harming is good, but there's so much more beyond just non-harming. So that gave me actually an inquiry. I, I was thinking, so what's the opposite of harm? And um, the scriptural volumes of Merriam-Webster and Roger's uh, thesaurus says that the opposite of harm is kindness, benefit, goodness, happiness, virtue, and blessing. That's the opposite of harm. And those opposites make up what we're involved with in this retreat, the energies of the heart, what is called the Brahma Viharas. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, Brahma, directly translated, is the highest. Vihara can be used in different loc. It's, the Vihara is the, is the temple, it's the abode, it's the home, it's the spiritual place, um, the sacred space. So Brahma Viharas is the highest places in which our hearts reside, our heart energies reside. And so they're the first of these archetypical energies, loving kindness or metta, is the primal energy that, that feeds this heart space. And we turn it to our full lives, the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys. And as we turn this primal energy of kindness towards the sorrows of our life, any sorrow, what is said to arise is compassion. It's the quivering of the heart 
that's, that's how tender it is. That Carol taught this afternoon. And as we turn it to the joy of our lives, the accomplishments, the, the happiness, there is a larger joy that arises. That's really the joy of being alive, this sympathetic or appreciative or connected joy that's greater than our personal pleasure. And we vacillate back and forth between the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And as we bounce back and forth, we, it's, not a, it's not an intellectual experience, it's a lived experience that there is this balance that occurs, which we call upeka or equanimity. All of them are these energies of the heart. All of them is, are the fruition of our ethical behaviors in a world that has forgotten the indispensable need for ethics. It has also forgotten the incontrovertible outcome of ethics is love. So we start with the integrity of love in our own lives, allowing all of who we are to be, to be available to us, coming into the room, as we were saying, without needing to leave any part of yourself outside. That feeling of wholeness. And yet that feeling of wholeness is not so simple for many of us, most of us. As we come into our seat, as we come into our meditation, as we come into the lives that, that emerge in our reflections and contemplations, without needing to repress or second guess or deny any aspect of ourselves, turning that attentive kindness that that mixture of metta and mindfulness that Sylvia talked about in her first talk to our own experience. It isn't so easy when there are so many external conditions, whether they're social, cultural, political, that have created a sense of exclusion or separation or isolation for so long from our bodies, our minds, our hearts, telling us that we don't look right, we don't act right, we don't think correctly, we, what we feel is insufficient. We don't have enough money, educational status, or, or, um, or uh, level. Whatever it is, we're not enough, and more is better. Then there's the internalization of this exclusion. This kind of external messaging can lead to our own self-judgment, our self-hatred, forms of denying ourselves, inadequacy, 
or these self-imposed limitations of, I can't do that, or I don't deserve that. I don't deserve loving kindness. These are the internal glass ceilings we are invited to shatter. When we bring all the pieces of our lives and our identities and our experiences together with this gentle awareness. This is the gathering of concentration that Donald was talking about. The gathering of the fragmentation. We all have different messages that limit ourselves. I certainly have had my own not, be, not feeling as good or, or less than <clears throat> what the dominant messages in the culture tell me. I remember it was before the age of 10 and I had you know, my own um, experiences with race in um, the suburb of Philadelphia that I grew up in. And I had this incipient, I didn't even have a word for my sexual orientation. I, I, I just didn't have a word for it. I, didn't, I had never talked, I just knew that there was something different about who this little boy was, who was growing up. And I said to myself, if it's, if it's so difficult to be a person of color in this world, I am never going to be that, meaning gay. And I had that thought before I was the age of 10. If it's this hard to be a person of color, I am never going to be gay. <laughs> How long did that thought last? <laughs> it actually lasted until I was 30 when I came out. And it's still, even 50 years after having that thought, I still have difficulties being different sometimes in a, in a social, cultural, political climate that is constantly changing around us. Who could we be and what could we do if any of us, regardless of those messages that may be very different for you than it is for me, what if we were never separated from the inherent goodness, that plowing of the fields of our heart that that calligrapher talked about? The wholeness and the wholesomeness of each of our lives, regardless of the adversities that the first noble truth imposes, Who, would, who are we really when we're completely able to belong in this life without needing to question any of it? This kind of self-esteem is not self-attachment. It is not an unwholesome sense of self or ego. It is recognizing the goodness that you have done for others, that you have done for yourself. Letting yourself feel good, not about pleasantness. It's about feeling the worthiness of who you are as a person. 
that natural capacity for the heart to be kind. We talk about wise speech a lot. Non-harming speech. What we say, the most important things we say in the world are what we say to ourselves. In fact, as in some psychological frameworks, the definition of a thought is self-talk. What do we say to ourselves? It is such an opportunity to reaffirm ourselves that we belong in this lifetime, regardless of what has come up for us. This is why the Buddha said, you will search the 10,000 universes and you will not find a single being more worthwhile to begin your loving kindness practice than yourself. The Buddha said that birth in a human being is so very precious and tender. It's, it's so precious that it's, that it's like in this vast, infinite, uh, infinitely wide and deep sea, there's a, a ring that's floating and this giant tortoise every hundred years has to come up for air once every hundred years. And every hundred years it comes up and the chances of being born in this lifetime as a human being are the chances of the head of that tortoise going through that floating ring in this infinite sea. He didn't say that happy people are more precious than depressed people. He didn't say that one gender expression is more precious than another gender expression, or, or that people of um, one culture or race are, are more precious than another. He didn't even say that less angry people are more precious than people who are more angry. He simply said that all beings born as human are so very precious because we all have a heart that has the capacity to touch others. We all have the capacity to awaken in this human life and ease the suffering of ourselves and others. Our wholeness and therefore our happiness is not dependent on external conditions. The more we are whole and can feel that integration of love in our life, we naturally fall in love with life itself. That joy that Kanda will talk about tomorrow at four o'clock, mudita, that joie de vivre. When we're not distracted by any external messaging telling us to be a certain person, act a certain way, look a certain way, be a certain way, that is a measure of freedom. That we can internalize that authenticity. And as we align ourselves with that truth and that freedom, we align ourselves with a path that supports that authenticity. That 
integrity of love in our path and our actions. That alignment of what's our intention in this life? What are our actions that lead from our intentions? What, are, what is the impact from our intentions? And what is the learning and growth that happens that begins to recalibrate those original intentions so that there's this feedback loop that's constant? This is the purification process. This is the gestation process. This is, this is as we become, as Sylvia was talking about the very first evening, kinder and kinder and kinder. Because without the intention of kindness, kindness won't emerge. But without the following factors of reinforcing tension with actions and behaviors, kindness also doesn't emerge. A lot of faith traditions state this. So in in James chapter 2, verse 17, it is said, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Intention without actions leads nowhere. So uh, I'm going to be a little bit careful because this is a local school, and my apologies if if um, it's an example that hits close to home for some of you. But um, uh, one of uh, Stephen and my grandchildren goes to a local school in Petaluma. And they had a project to raise funds for the school, which is a very great project for the kids to involve in and, and um, develop generosity and, 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 you know, sort of sustainable support for the school. And there was a reward for the students who brought in uh, the most donations. And this is where the disconnect occurred for me. The reward was being able to throw a pie at the principal. <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, that makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. It's, it's contraindicative to what you're cultivating. And so, you know, the kids were saying, hit her in the face, hit her. You know, it was like, is this what we're cultivating in our schools? We have to be really careful to match our actions with our intentions. And it's not just about actualizing our intentions with congruent actions, because often those actions still have a negative impact on on people. We make mistakes. The point is, how can we learn from those mistakes as opposed to identify with those, with those mistakes? We actually don't learn from things that we know how to do. We actually learn from the most, those mistakes if 
we don't judge ourselves over and over again and become the mistake. What do we learn from the feelings of regret and remorse? Well, hopefully it's to do better the next time. This is the feedback loop of the Eightfold Path. This is the, which is the fourth noble truth. This is the path that leads to freedom. The Buddha said, there is a case where a person of integrity is endowed with conviction. That's wise effort. Conscience. That's ethics. Concern and caring. That's loving kindness. They are learned and aroused. They're learned with aroused persistence, concentration, mindfulness, and wise discernment. That's wisdom. This is how a person of integrity is endowed with the qualities of integrity. So let's connect things another way. Let's start with the wisdom factors of the Eightfold Path, the insight of understanding and intention that we've just talked about. These are the wisdom factors leading to ethical behavior, sila, the non-harming of kindness, speech, actions, and livelihood, leading to a contemplative and reflective learning from the impact of our actions in the world. That's the samadhi factors of mindfulness, effort, and concentration, deepening our insight and understanding as to what are our next intentions? How do I grow even further, become even kinder? So I have this rambling story that I, I hope expresses this point of intentions and actions and learning, but it's not linear, so forgive me if it feels rambling. But it's a story from my own life, so it, it brings a lot of tangents together. Um, so, uh, I mean, I have a really good relationship with my mother these days, but her relationship to my orientation was not always comfortable. In fact, um, when I first came out to her when I was 30, so that was almost 30 years ago, she didn't speak to me for about two years and thought that I would uh, die in the AIDS crisis. And she, was, she had no information about about uh, any aspect of this part of my life. And, um, and when Stephen came into my life, she had difficulty with uh, our relationship. Um, uh, I remember one holiday season when we sent out joint holiday cards and we put both of our names in the return address and that just triggered her. You know, she felt that that was such a um, public statement that was um, uh, um, um, disrespecting um, what she valued. 
And when we um, had our first commitment ceremony, gay people had a lot of commitment ceremonies and marriages, and <laughs> we have all these excuses to, to have celebrations. But when our, in our first commitment ceremony, um, she didn't know whether she was going to come, and, and, and um, she finally came uh, dressed in black and gray. <laughs> and, um, and it was hard because there was this piece, this is, you know, the talk about the complicated family relationships and, and offering metta to these complicated family relationships. And, um, but Stephen became part of the family, and so he showed up at our dinners, which were, food is really important in, in Asian families, and so we had these family banquets, of which she always cooked. And she's an incredible cook. And um, so I noticed a shift when she began cooking his favorite dishes. And then she began teaching him how to cook his favorite dishes. (laughs) And, you know, this took a better part of eight years of just going through the complexity and the difficulties. And now, at 98, she's no longer able to cook because twice she almost set the stove on fire and she knows that her mind is not present in that way. And so now Stephen cooks for her. And in that field of love that took a long time to plow with a lot of patience. There's a new field of caregiving that is arising for us and me in particular. That I'm becoming, as many of you know, who are caregivers of your parents, to be the parent of your parents. And, and, um, and how much attention is required for someone who is losing their mind to feel loved because they forget. And so I make sure I call her twice. I have it programmed in about five minutes to call her twice a day. I send her a postcard every day so that I, I tell her that so that your Post box stays warm. And all, a lot of my Western friends are telling me, you know, at some point in time, you're going to have to hire a caregiver. At some point in time, you know, you want to take care of yourself. You want to, you know, you want to have your own life. And I know, I feel that edge, and yet this attentive kindness is engaging me even further. This is what I have to do. Maybe it's cultural, but it's the field that's been plowed in our family. And 
Beyond that, this is where I was going to go, even though it's a rambling story. Beyond that, I realize she is teaching me so much about what it is to love. Not the love that she's giving me. She's teaching me how to love in such a different way that I will be able to offer this to my husband. I will be able to offer this to my brother, who's 13 years older than I am, and he's aging quickly, and he has no one else. I will be able to offer this to my best friend. I will actually be able to offer this to anyone who comes to my attention needing care. He's, she's teaching me how to love in this expansive way that I could have never predicted if I wasn't open to it. If She's teaching me how to be kinder, as Sylvia was, was saying. Because we can be Because our path towards freedom requires all of this. It doesn't just require mindfulness in a way that the mainstream media would like us to believe. You know, everything is about mindfulness these days. Because you can be mindful of anything, including how to cause harm. You know, to, you can be very mindful of how to benefit yourself over everybody else. Recent studies show that um, on, 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 on the dynamic of cheating, that we actually might not feel so bad about cheating if we can get away with it. Originally, the, the studies were if we were aware um, of the consequences of our actions, we would, we would refrain from cheating. But those early studies are being proven that, that and maybe the, the values have changed in our culture, but if we can get away with it, we actually don't feel so bad about, about cheating. The more subtle form of this is, is that we are conditioned in our market economy to get as much as we can and offer as little as we can. To get more and more. The more acute form of this that we're experiencing is in this post-factual, post-truth, post-ethical world. This is where truth is not respected as a value when it is valued to be able to get away with saying and doing anything you want in order to get what you want, there is this harming with no consequences. So when there is less external accountability, the internal effort and concentration is so much more needed in our practice. This concentration to have a moral barometer, this integrity, this sense of integrity, this expression of love, 
C.S. Lewis writes, integrity is doing the right thing when no one is watching. I've added to that. Integrity is doing the skillful thing. Skillful meaning that which leads to freedom when no one notices. Integrity is doing the skillful thing when no one agrees with you. Integrity is doing the skillful thing even if it's difficult or painful. Integrity is doing the skillful thing when you don't have to because we have some privilege, benefit, or entitlement. Integrity is being kind when everyone and everything around you is not kind. Integrity is being loving when you do not feel loved yourself. Integrity is being ethical in amoral times, having a moral compass when others don't. And as we do this, as we move through our own suffering, when our heart moves to act for diminishing our suffering, it automatically moves to act on the behalf of others, to lessen the suffering of others, so that the suffering and the cycles of suffering do not get repeated. This is what the It Gets Better campaign has been about. Some of you know that it was started in the year 2010 by uh, a uh, journalist and author, Dan Savage, who wanted to give hope to LGBTIQ youth who faced tormenting and bullying that led to intense despair. His example was to be an example that life gets better if you can tolerate the travails of your teenage years. And the foundation is to support those teens during those teenage years. And, and that from his one YouTube video, 50,000 other videos were made that have been viewed over 50 million times. This is how the ripple effect of love begins to transform the world. Integrity takes courage, as you may feel implicit in some of these stories, which is, the, which is the definition of the word courage, right? From the French cur, to be with your heart. To be with your heart through the suffering. There's uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote about integrity. There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but it must, but they must take it because conscience tells them that it's right. After the elections, I was 
um, I was um, I felt validated by this resolution that I read from the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but a passage of it, uh, which um, I believe came out on November 8th, further resolved that we will not back down on women's rights, whether in healthcare, the workplace, or any other area threatened by a man who treats women as obstacles to be demeaned or objects to be assaulted. And just as important, we will ensure our young girls grow up with role models who show them they can be or do anything. And be it further resolved, there will be no conversion therapy, no withdrawal of rights in San Francisco. We began hosting gay weddings 12 years ago, and we are not stopping now. And to all the LGBT people all over the country who feel scared, bullied, or alone, you matter. You are seen. You are loved. And San Francisco will never stop fighting for you. And be it further resolved that we still believe in this nation's founding principle of religious freedom. We do not ban people for their faith. And the only lists we keep are on invitations to come to pray together. And be it further resolved that Black Lives Matter in San Francisco, even if they may not in the White House, and guided by President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, we will continue reforming our police department and rebuilding trust between police and communities of color so that citizens feel safe in their neighborhoods. It ends, uh, it goes on, and it ends. We argue, we campaign, we debate vigorously within San Francisco, but on these points we are 100% united. We will fight discrimination, recklessness in all its forms. We are one city and we will move forward together. Thank you for that expression. Intention and expression of love. And I focus on the very last word, together. Because our spiritual practice is not our personal practice of awakening, enlightenment, or freedom. It is not just about that. It is not just about our personal salvation or, or our personal sense of well-being. It is about our collective journey together. This integrity of love for our world. The integrity of our practice invites us to expand beyond our individual selves as it automatically does in the practice of compassion. To greater and greater numbers of beings around us. And this is the cross-cultural, cross-spiritual experience of the word unconditional. When we talked about unconditional love unconditional regard. I always had, like, what is that? How do I get there? 
And this is why I love this particular lineage and path. Even though many traditions talk about the unconditional, it shows me incremental steps of, oh, this is what I can do. And that aspiration, that North Star can be real for me. This sense of relational interconnection, remember that, that quote I read, I think the first night that from uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that we are tied in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. This relational interconnection is indispensable in creating community, sangha, spiritual friends. We cannot have community without relationships. And we cannot have relationships without kindness and love. We come into spiritual practice looking for respite from a world that is so busy and so full. And sometimes we're looking for peace or even safety from harm and pain, even violence. Safety in order to feel that we can bring our whole selves into this room and belong. And yet we know that no space is 100% safe. What does it mean to live into that reality that we're trying to create a space safe enough for this being, but also to create safe, safe enough spaces for people with different experiences. Because we all have felt unsafe at times. We all have felt that we haven't belonged. How can we use that experience to develop that collective sense of belonging, that it's not just an individual practice that the supervisor's resolution are pointing to. It takes all of us to hold to that resu those resolutions, that safety and belonging is not an individual matter. Again, as Dr. King writes, it takes a shift in consciousness from all of us. We can, change, we can work to change our lives because we hate our failures. We resent our mood states or depression or mental states. We're ashamed of our imperfections. We can't stand certain aspects of our personalities or our patterns or our bodies or our lives or, or what we think or our histories or we blame ourselves for the litany of mistakes that we've made in our lives or feel inadequate about any aspect of who we are. Or we can transform our lives because out of the adversity of each of our experiences, we have created this beautifully complex and rich life.
that we are so aware of how precious this is, how incredulous this gift of creating life is, that life is a piece of artwork that we're constantly adding to. And so in love with this beauty of this art that we have no choice but to create less suffering and more freedom for ourselves and others. You can feel the two opposing energies of these intentions. And they create two very different outcomes. And for the activists and change agents, past, present, and future in this room, we can work to change the world because we hate the injustice, because we cannot abide by the harm that's being caused, or we're enraged by the unfairness and the disparity, or driven by the urgency of the demands. Or we can be inspired to change the world because we care for it so deeply with the integrity of our love, because we hold it with such wondrous awe in its resiliency and courage, with our hearts as wide open as possible, we can do nothing else other than to alleviate suffering in the world and ourselves. Again, these are two very different experiences. One can sustain and support our spiritual path through a lifetime, and the other can drain and burn us out. We are not the Buddha. But like the Buddha, we are all human beings, each of us. And the Buddha said he would not teach that which we cannot do. This is possible in our lifetimes. There is deep pain in this world, and that means there is the deepest possibility for healing, even beyond which we think is possible. The Buddha's new social order that he posited 2,600 years ago, that on a profound level, the root cause of social suffering, inequity, injustice, is not just of economic, social, or cultural issues, but a lack of love and a lack of ethical integrity. 
Only in an ethically wholesome society can we create a healthy system of social, economic, and political justice. And since society is made up of all of us, because each of us are part of that experience of being human, the ethical transformation starts here. So, connecting the dots in reverse, this integrity of love in the world, treating the most difficult, the most complicated situations in the world with wholeness, integrity, creating justice through just means, supporting by walking a path with ethical integrity, this integrity of love in our path and actions, aligning our actions with our aspirations and intentions, how we live into our spiritual lives together in relationship and community. And the ethical, the integrity of love in ourselves, being authentic to who we really are, grounded in our own sense of worthiness, of goodness. Make no mistake, this is all one practice. And you have already begun it. You are already immersed in it here. Sylvia invoked uh, the, 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 um, the master teacher and um, uh, what, would, what would we call him? Um, is there an equivalent of, of, of saint in, in Buddhism? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Venerable. So Sylvia invoked Mahagasananda, Venerable Mahagasananda, um, and uh, there's a photograph of him in the Gratitude Hut trying to bow deeper than the Dalai Lama. They're competing, you know, <laughs> bowing deeply to each other. And this is a man who um, lost all of his family in the uh, the Holocaust in Cambodia, and um, and um, uh, out of sixty thousand monks, he was one of three thousand that survived. Um, a devastation of culture and and um, violence, and he felt that it was his calling to reinstate the faith in, in Cambodia. And so he would take these peace walks through the minefields, the land minefields. He became, um, he, he became an advocate to uh, outlaw landmines uh, worldwide. 
and uh, sometimes people got scared and ran away. Some people got killed. There was still fighting going on even after the peace talks, and and he still would just walk, you know, um, uh, step by step. That's the name of his book. And in this book, step by step, this is what he taught after the killing fields. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. Habit hardens into character. Character gives birth to the destiny. So watch your thoughts with care. Let it spring from love born out of respect for all beings. Thank you for your practice in integrity and love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.